0: Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. On today's show, we're thrilled to welcome back Naomi Schaefer Riley, a frequent writer for the magazine who follows child welfare issues closely, and that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Hello again, everyone. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Naomi schaefer Riley. Naomi is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute focusing on issues regarding child welfare, as well as a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum and a longtime contributor to City Journal. You can follow her on Twitter at Naomi S. Riley. This is Naomi's second time joining us in the studio, and we're happy to have her back. Naomi, thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: You've been writing a lot for us recently about foster care, and I know it's something you feel strongly about and have covered for a while. Uh, So let's start with this question. What is the general state of foster care in America, and uh, uh, what is the size of the foster care population?
1: Uh, so there are uh, a little over four hundred and forty thousand kids who are in foster care at any one time uh, during the last year, uh, or when the when the uh, when. I'm sorry, when the fiscal year kind of closed. Um, But there are many more kids who are going in and out uh, over the course of that year. The number has been rising uh, for the last several years. Many people say this is uh, linked to the drug epidemic that has overtaken the country. That is uh, certainly at the heart of a lot of uh, child removal cases. Um, I would say, in general, the foster care system uh, is pretty broken, and uh, I think uh, New York, certainly that's the case, but it's true all over the country, both in uh, rural and urban areas. I think you are seeing uh, a lot of kids who are going in and out of the system over and over again. Certainly, family reunification is the main objective with most foster care cases, but that what that actually means in reality is that children are taken out of their home and put back uh, often several times uh, before being permanently removed.
0: And the system varies from state to state, or is is. there kind of general agreement on how um, the system should operate?
1: Child welfare is a state-run system, but about half of the funds for foster care come from the federal government. The federal government, though, doesn't really exercise a great deal of authority or control over uh, how the systems are run. They do say what they think the money could be used for, but there is uh, some federal legislation uh, that was passed certainly in the 1990s regarding the foster care system, and that is not uh, enforced. Uh, Two very important pieces of legislation are the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which says that if a child has been in foster care for 15 of the last 22 months, the state is supposed to move to terminate parental rights. And I can say both uh, anecdotally and looking at the data Data, that that actually rarely happens. Um, most children are left uh, to languish in foster care, something Congress was really trying to push back against with this legislation. Uh, for years at a time, um, often the parents claim that they did not get the appropriate services and so they cannot be held to this timeline, but regardless it means a lot less permanency for children. Um, the second piece of legislation, which I also think was so important and represented kind of the 90s consensus when it came to adoption and foster care uh, was the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, which said that you should not be able to discriminate based on race when you're placing a child for foster care or adoption. Uh, And I talk to people regularly who talk about how in family court, um, their race is regularly brought up, typically white parents who are told that they could not possibly know what it would be like to raise a black child. And so the foster care system would rather twiddle its thumbs and wait around for somebody else who looks like the child.
0: There's a story here in the news uh, lately—a uh, horrible uh, case uh, involving um, a six-year-old boy who died. Um, I guess it's over three years ago. Uh, at this point, uh, Zamir Perkins—he um, was allegedly beaten to death by his his mother's boyfriend. So it it certainly illumines some of the, uh, you know, some of the um, awful. Um, Situations that these these kids can find themselves in. As the story has emerged, we now know that the Children's Services here in the city had launched five different investigations into into allegations of abuse against the boy. Uh, yet, never sought to remove him from his home. Um, could you talk a little bit about that case and and um, you know what might be done to prevent those kind of circumstances?
1: Yeah, so this was 2016, and as you say, uh, you know, particularly the aspect of this case that involved the the mother's boyfriend. Um, unfortunately, that is a pattern in a lot of these cases. A non-relative male living in a house means that a child is in significantly greater danger uh, than if they were living with two biological parents, and certainly not um, with two married biological parents. I think it's a child is about uh, 10 times as likely to be abused when they are living uh, with a mother and, and a non-biological. Relative male uh, in the house, so so certainly that comes out here. Um, I think you know the other thing that's important to note is that um, you know the mother really uh, did not intervene. This is a case, unfortunately, I think of a mother deciding to stand by her man instead of standing by her child, um, and she stood by while this was going on. And some of the details that have come out in the trial, you know, that she waited uh, quite a while doing her makeup, you know, when she thought the child might be dead uh, before actually calling emergency services um I think the uh, Amer- um, Administration for Children's S- Services in New York has certainly undergone uh, quite a, a change in the last couple of years. Gladys Carrion, um, who was the commissioner when this happened and who oversaw a lot of failures in the system, was forced to uh, resign in disgrace after the Zamir Perkins case. Uh, David Hansel, who's taken over, certainly uh, did a, a top-to-bottom assessment of what was going on in the system. And I think he's, he's certainly made some important administrative. Of changes. Unfortunately, It's very hard for us to figure out what goes on uh, behind closed doors in some of these families. A lot of our caseworkers are not very well trained. They're certainly not trained to do the kind of investigative work which I think is much more akin to law enforcement than social work. Uh, And so that's one of the systemic changes I'd like to see is in terms of how we recruit CPS workers, I'd like to see them coming out of a much more law enforcement-oriented background because that's what we're actually asking them to do. Uh, the second thing I would just mention, uh, this is a big topic, uh, is the use of predictive analytics in order to try to figure out which children are most at risk. We get tens of thousands of calls into child abuse hotlines in urban areas. Often these systems are overwhelmed, uh, and in part they're overwhelmed because some of the calls coming in are simply not worthy of any kind of investigation, or there's not enough information to do any kind of investigation. But if we could combine some of the data that we have about these families through, uh, you know, from TANF programs or education records or criminal records of the parents, we might be able to know which cases need our more urgent attention.
0: That's a very interesting point. So that big data and and increasingly sophisticated technology may be able to to help in these these circumstances. Yeah, you know, it's these, not these just for baseball, conditions. right? Uh, well, police police departments are starting to adapt uh, adopt some of these. Uh, you know, these predictive uh, platforms as well. Now, um, your last essay for the magazine, which appeared in the summer issue, was a terrific piece called Wanted More and Better Foster Parents, and looked at a different uh, aspect of the foster care situation. In that piece, you pointed out that, um, according to national estimates, about half of all foster parents Uh, decide to quit after or during their first year of being foster parents. Uh, Talk a little bit about that and what uh, the very interesting nonprofit um, you profiled in that piece is doing to, to address that.
1: So I think the experience of foster parents, as I've talked to them across the country, has been one of of great frustration. Uh, And and often they will say to me, the foster parents will say to me, it's not the kids, it's the adults. I mean, certainly these kids are very challenging. They have come from places of real trauma, physical, emotional abuse, neglect. They don't know how to relate to other people. But these parents kind of know that getting into it. What they don't realize is that uh, they will be spending how much of their life they will be spending dealing with caseworkers, dealing with the family court system, another issue I've written about for City Journal, um, and and how frustrating this is. I mean, I sometimes ask people, you know, they they ask me, I don't, I am not a foster parent, but because I've written so much about it, people will ask me, do you think I should do foster parenting? And I will say to them, half-jokingly, how many hours a week would you be prepared to spend at the DMV? Uh, Because that is what it is like, only, you know, children's lives are at stake here. Um, I will say that uh, the other thing that foster parents have experienced, and this is uh, a little bit of the, the piece I wrote for you, is a, is a kind of lack of support. And Project 127, which was uh, you know founded uh, about 15 years ago in Colorado, is actually a program. It's a faith-based program, but it's essentially uh, meant to help churches, mostly large uh, evangelical churches, recruit, train, and support foster families. Um, so the first uh, kind of uh, revelation that um, this nonprofit and others like it have had, is that the state does not do a very good job of recruiting foster parents. You know, you could put up a picture of a kid on the nightly news, but frankly, that's not going to encourage a lot of people to sign up. If you go into a pulpit and you say, these are the seven kids in your zip code tonight who need a bed, um, that actually has much more of an effect on people's consciences. The second thing that they did is they decided they were going to do their own training. So the state, you know, gave them basic requirements for what foster parents need to know. And they've incorporated that curriculum into a more faith-based context. Um, They still include all of the, you know, information about, you know, everything from CPR to understanding what trauma is. uh, But they they add more to it, add more context, and often put it, make it uh, happen in more convenient places and times than the state was willing to do. The final thing that I think is probably the most important part is that Uh, Project 127 and some other organizations have put in place this support network, and they have said to families, if you want to sign up to do foster parenting, you actually have to come to us with four or five other people, other adults, couples, families, who are willing to help you in this process. That means that they will be willing to babysit the kid if you need, you know, a night off. They will be willing to help, you know, carpool with this child. They will be willing to help you build furniture if you're taking in foster kids, you know, and you don't happen to have that um, they will be making meals and and they will be praying for you, frankly, um, because that level of support is so important to getting people to continue this.
0: Child welfare services, as you noted earlier, is typically handled by state and local governments. Uh, but the uh, Trump administration uh, did make a mark, I think, in in child welfare policy this year by rescinding uh, the Obama era regulation that banned federal funding for religiously based providers like this group that you're, you're describing in, in Colorado. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the, that uh, approach that the Trump administration has taken and, and whether that uh, promises to do some good? So
1: Project 127 wasn't in immediate danger of losing its funding because they're not a placement agency, which is that to say they don't actually take the foster chil- children and put them into homes. Right. But I think the long-term plan, obviously, on the on the part of um, you know folks who really want uh, foster care to be a kind of social engineering project, um, was really to take away any kind of faith-based agency from broadly doing this kind of work. That being said, I think the Trump administration did strike a blow here. You know, both symbolic but also practical, um, in saying that we need to make sure that there is uh, as much support as possible for these children and and as many agencies as possible that are doing this kind of training and placement, regardless of their religious identity. And I have to say what, what has annoyed me so much about this debate is I think that looking back on the debate that this country had over gay marriage a few years ago, you can find some very good examples where people said, gay marriage is so important because we, we gay, gay couples should be able to adopt. And and it was even, the, the question was even posed, do you feel, you know, that is so important that, that we stick to only heterosexual marriage, that, that you'd rather see a child languish in foster care than get placed with a, a gay couple? And I think a lot of conservatives, frankly, answered that question and said, no, I think this child should be in a loving home, even if I don't happen to agree with this particular arrangement. Mm-hmm. Now, when the shoe is on the other foot, and, and conservatives are saying look we want to make sure that as many options are available as possible now the other side is saying wait if you don't adhere to my orthodoxy which is that all you know all families uh you know that that the catholic church or or evangelical faith-based organizations must place a child with any family uh out there regardless of the family structure um then we would like to shut you down and that to me is again placing the interests of the adult over the interests of the children
0: Very important point, Naomi. Uh, Now, don't forget to check out uh, Naomi Riley's work at City Journal on child welfare, foster care, related issues. Uh, You can find it on our website. We'll link to her author page in the description. You can follow Naomi on Twitter at Naomi S. Riley. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, of course, at City Journal. Remember, you can email us at podcast at city-journal.org if you have any questions or suggestions. And always, if you like what you heard on the podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening and thanks, Naomi, for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.